In March 2011, an Assembler Games user named Proton X revealed to the world Sonic Extreme, an unreleased Sonic the Hedgehog spin-off. This highly rare prototype, which was salvaged from a development kit for the original Xbox, raised many questions, a good number of which were answered by those who continued to research it in the years that followed. Andrew Borman, a seasoned video game preservationist, rediscovered it after it had fallen off the map for around five years. He was able to successfully track down the only build of it known to exist and dig into its contents to unearth more details. According to Andrew, the prototype was made by a little-known company called Visionscape Interactive from San Diego, California. Over 13 years since the project's inception, I reached out to former members of Visionscape to get their side of the story behind this mysterious lost game. Visionscape's road to creating Sonic Extreme can be traced back to around 2002. They had just completed development on Seablade, a flight combat shooter game for the Xbox. It had originally been intended to be part of a collaboration with Microsoft to promote the 2001 Steven Spielberg film AI Artificial Intelligence. The agreement ultimately fell apart, and Visionscape was forced to hastily retrofit the title into an original IP, stripping out all references to the movie just months before release. This turn of events limited its success. For Visionscape, though, this was only one of the few ventures they had in the works. They had also secured the video game rights to Tech Deck, a series of finger skateboarding toys that gained popularity in the late 1990s. The outcome of this deal was a line of products known as digital playsets. These were packages sold at toy stores around the world, each containing two Tech Deck character figurines and a CD-ROM with a video game on it. Known as Bare Knuckle Grind, the skateboarding game was developed by Visionscape Interactive and utilised an innovative business model. Each of the different Tech Deck character figure packs came with their own version of the game that contained new playable characters and a different town to explore. The more players collected of the toy line, the larger their interconnected virtual world or digital playset would become. The model in many ways foreshadowed the arrival of Toys to Life games like Disney Infinity and Lego Dimensions. Launching in 2003, the product soon became a success. Ahead of its launch, however, Visionscape was already acting on plans to expand Bare Knuckle Grind's reach with ports to consoles. They also intended to reuse the framework they had built for it in other skateboarding-themed games. The first of these was based around the Nickelodeon TV show Rocket Power, a cartoon series about a group of friends who partake in various extreme sports. Publisher THQ acquired the license around the time of its first airing in 1999 and had set about producing video game tie-ins with it. The next one they had planned was called Rocket Power Zero Gravity Zone. It was set to be developed by Visionscape for Xbox, PS2 and GameCube, while Ultron, a separate company handled a Game Boy Advance version. Visionscape's console game used a lot of the tech they had built for Bare Knuckle Grind and the same engine, a version of Renderware. It was being made with the Xbox as the lead platform given the fact that they already had experience with the hardware from working with Microsoft on Seablade. Renderware would have enabled them to port Rocket Power Zero Gravity Zone to other platforms with relative ease as development went on. Unfortunately for them, however, the project never made it that far. Right before the game was set to enter alpha testing, THQ, who had been funding it, abruptly applied the brakes in around late February 2003. For years, its cancellation would remain shrouded in mystery. I contacted Matt McDonald, one of Visionscape's co-founders, to understand more about what happened and its connection to Sonic Extreme. According to Matt, THQ faced mounting financial issues at the time. Within the space of a week, 13 separate projects were cancelled in an effort to decrease spending, including Visionscape's rocket power title. Ultron's Game Boy Advance version, on the other hand, had a much smaller budget and was thus allowed to continue. 
debut. It released in August 2003 without its home console counterparts. With their Rocket Power game dead, a lot of Visionscape's employees were left without an active project. Their president, Matt McDonald, was forced to improvise. A number of Visionscape's members had a background in animation. Matt had himself worked on the animated TV show But Ugly Martians, for instance. The studio therefore not only made its own games, it was producing CGI animation for games made by other companies. They had been hired to do 3D animated cutscenes for Sega's next Sonic the Hedgehog title, Sonic Heroes. Making use of this new industry contact, Matt decided in May 2003 that his team would put together a pitch for a new Sonic game for Xbox, PS2 and GameCube. The idea was to take the technology and experience they developed during Rocket Power and Bare Knuckle Grind and apply it to this new project. It was planned to be a game where the player competed against various Sonic characters in a number of differently themed worlds on hoverboards. Using the same engine and many of the same assets from Bare Knuckle Grind, a playable prototype was assembled for this theoretical new game. Recycling pre-existing tools like this allowed them to create the demo very quickly. Matt estimates that it took them no more than a week to make. Not only was the development process efficient, if the pitch was successful it would carry the advantage of giving Sega a head start on the following Sonic game, since Sonic Team itself wouldn't be done with heroes until later into the air. Thanks to their collaboration with Sega on the cinematics for Sonic Heroes, it meant that they also had some access to their internal library of game assets, like character models for both Sonic and Shadow, as well as art from previous games. These would become implemented into the hoverboarding prototype. Its menus were comprised of promotional art from the Sonic Adventure games, and the character models became their two playable characters, Shadow and Sonic. The player could navigate them through a skate park level stylized after Green Hill Zone from the original Sonic the Hedgehog with its iconic checkered soil. The stage is full of various slopes to ride up and rails to grind on. Doing so will allow you to pull off a number of tricks, like stalls, flips and spins. Executing a trick successfully will give you points that are tallied up into a total shown on the top left of the HUD. According to Andrew Bowman, the prototype's owner, there are a few different modes that are accessible within it. The first of these is a single player mission mode where the player explores the Green Hill style environment with the ultimate goal of collecting an emerald. They must first locate and collect a key which then allows them to unlock a portal. Travelling through it will take them to a final area wherein they can pick up the floating emerald, at which point the demo ends. The other two main modes have a two player local multiplayer option enabled via split screen. Alternatively, they can be played against a computer controlled opponent. One of them is dubbed Combat and has the two hedgehogs duking it out by picking up weapons and firing them at each other. There are several different types of weapons to grab, including rockets and grenades. They can also perform a spin attack to smash crates, revealing more of the level. The other game type is a simple race mode where the two characters compete against each other in a race to the finish. There are Sonic-style boost pads on the ground, enabling you to pick up more speed. In addition, there is a very basic, grey-coloured area built by the developers for test purposes that's hidden in the game's files. Various audio files sourced from Sonic Adventure 2 are used throughout the demo, including voice clips for Sonic and music lifted from its soundtrack. Playing as Sonic will trigger Escape from the City, the theme from Sonic Adventure 2's City Escape level to play. Shadow's music, on the other hand, is the song from the Knuckles Pumpkin Hill stage, a ghost pumpkin soup. Lastly, the menu music is the Chow Garden's Chow Machine track. Sonic Extreme's prototype was paid for by Visionscape itself, initially existing without Sega's knowledge. It wasn't until Visionscape called a meeting with Sega that their project would become formally introduced to them. Matt McDonald sat down with the head of Sonic team at the time, Yuji Naka, to show him their work. According to Matt, Naka was hugely impressed with the demo. He apparently made it clear that 
while Sega had no such game like this being planned, he was enthusiastic about the concept. At the end of their meeting, he allegedly stated in no uncertain terms that the two companies would move forward with the project. He requested that Visionscape assemble a design document planning out a full game and a preliminary budget calculating how much it would cost Sega to develop. For the brief period that would follow, it seemed to Visionscape's management that they had secured the company's immediate future with this new deal on the horizon, although this sense of security was short-lived. Visionscape did draft up and submit the plans requested by Yuji Naka, but it was at this juncture that Sega went silent on the matter. McDonald and his team waited for weeks expecting a response. There wasn't one. Repeated attempts to contact Sega were made by Visionscape's agent in the following months to no avail. Without any explanation provided, the publisher ended its correspondence with them on a permanent basis after they submitted the cutscenes for Sonic Heroes. Speaking to me in 2017, Matt McDonald says that he never took their quiet rejection of Visionscape personally. He assumed that they simply had other plans and chose against moving forward with Sonic Extreme. It was another two years before Matt and his team would receive an update on the Sonic Extreme front. In this time, Sega had released Sonic Heroes and was nearing completion on its spin-off, Shadow the Hedgehog. In September 2005, the heads of Visionscape were surprised to learn about the next Sonic game development, Sonic Riders. The title was set to feature Sonic and his friends racing on hoverboards and performing tricks across various worlds, a premise that they believed was strikingly similar to the one Visionscape had pitched around two years earlier. In our correspondence, Matt told me that he is certain that Sega essentially took the rough concept that they presented in Sonic Extreme and made it themselves, excluding Visionscape from the process altogether. This, he believes, accounts for their total silence after their full proposal was submitted. Comparing Sonic Riders and the Extreme prototype, there are some vague similarities outside of the core hoverboarding concept. It could be argued that the modes in Visionscape's pitch are in some form precedent riders. There is a battle mode in which players hover around a small arena and fight each other. They can even collect items that float next to them. They both, of course, have race options, and there is a game type in Riders where you collect an emerald, although it's very different from the one seen in Extreme and has more of a competitive slant to it. Despite these small observations, there's ultimately little value in comparing a rough prototype made in about a week from pre-existing assets to a fully funded finished game. There's no way of knowing how a fully developed Sonic Extreme would compare to Riders. What McDonald alleges is that Yuji Naka and his team took Visionscape's early concept of a Sonic hoverboarding game and went in their own direction from there. When Matt first learned about Sonic Riders, he did contact his agent to inquire about the legal situation around its alleged connection to Sonic Extreme. He was apparently told that the non-disclosure agreement Visionscape had signed during Sonic Heroes included a caveat that if any pitch submitted to Sega used their intellectual property, in this case Sonic, Visionscape would automatically surrender ownership of it. In other words, Sega is the legal owner of Sonic Extreme, and if Sonic Team did copy its ideas for Sonic Riders, it would have been completely legal. Matt's allegations are supported by other former members of Visionscape that I spoke to independently of him, who are no longer under his employment. Furthermore, the file date from the prototype proved definitively that it was made before Sonic Riders, as he claims. In the interests of balance, I did contact both Yuji Naka and Sega multiple times to hear their side of the story, but both declined to comment. Sonic Extreme marks one of the many games lost in the Blue Hedgehog's long history. It's also one that we might never have discovered were it not for the actions of a few rogue ex-employees from Visionscape. The company had announced it was shutting down in 2006, at which point Matt instructed a few of his remaining staff to dispose of their old development hardware. He had arranged for them to deliver a series of dev kits to an electronic recycling plant. Evidently, at least some of this technology never made it there. Instead, it appears to have been sold about, being traded between private collectors before 
before eventually being recovered and preserved by Andrew Borman. Officially, nothing ever came of Visionscape's sonic hoverboarding project, but depending on who you believe, it could be possible that there is a causal link between the existence of it and an entire series of Sonic spin-off games. The Star Wars Rogue Squadron games released originally on Nintendo 64 and GameCube respectively between the years of 1998 and 2003. It was a flight combat series made in a collaboration between Factor 5 and LucasArts that was met with praise from critics and relative success. In the years that followed its last instalment, Rebel Strike, rumours of a follow-up continued to occasionally crop up. There were stories of an apparent sequel and a possible remastered collection, but none of these amounted to anything. It wasn't until until October 2014 that the former president of Factor 5, Julian Egbrecht, appeared on IGN's Nintendo podcast to shed some light on what happened. He revealed a scrapped multiplayer version of Star Wars Rogue Squadron and an unreleased compilation of the games with new features. The true extent of the developers' involvement with Star Wars and their relationship with LucasArts, however, was far from fully divulged. In looking back through the rich history of these two companies, we will learn more about the missing trilogy collection and discover two more lost Star Wars games that have never previously been spoken of publicly. In around October 2003, Star Wars Rogue Squadron 3 Rebel Strike was finished and launched in all territories by the end of November. During that game's development, Factor 5 had begun to take on other projects on the side, such as proposals for Nintendo. This included a gritty take on Pilot Wings for the GameCube, which was set during the early Cold War era. This was a time in the company's history when they were relentless in coming up with new ideas as they were trying to decide what was next. At some point during the making of Rogue Squadron 2, they had done something they'd never previously done with Star Wars. After a few years of making games where you played as members of the Rebel Alliance like Luke Skywalker, their creative heads decided to do things a bit differently. Hidden inside the game were two non-canonical bonus missions named Triumph of the Empire and Revenge on Yavin respectively. They imagined an alternative timeline to Star Wars in which the Rebel Alliance is crushed by the Galactic Empire. It was a short what-if story which asked, what if the Rebels failed to destroy the first Death Star in the climax of A New Hope. The player controlled Darth Vader, piloting his distinctive TIE Advance X-1, who must put a stop to the Rebel assault on the Death Star. If successful, Luke Skywalker is killed moments before completing his attack, and the Empire emerges triumphant. In the following mission, Vader and his squadron invade Yavin 4. They must eliminate all of their fleeing transport vessels to prevent the Rebel leaders from escaping. A couple of years on from Rogue Squadron 2, Factor 5's people decided they would revisit this concept after Rebels strike. They would take the idea much further in a spin-off of the Rogue Squadron series dubbed Star Wars Dark Squadron. As the name suggests, this was planned to be an entire game where the player fought for the Imperials, joining their campaign to quash the Rebel Alliance. Like Rogue Squadron, it would have been a flight combat game, but with a spotlight on Imperial ships like TIEs as you would expect. The main playable character would have been Darth Vader, as it was in the aforementioned Empire levels from Rogue Squadron 2. The previous games offered players some limited strategy elements such as the ability to issue orders to your squadmates with the d-pad. 
Engage at will. Dark Squadron would have expanded upon this, allowing you to command an entire Imperial fleet. You would have been able to bring up a menu during missions to purchase new support options. This entailed everything from tactical moves like orbital strikes and blockades, to summoning new Star Destroyers, bombers, and walkers for ground assaults. A former programmer of Factor 5 suggested the game would have seen a number of enhancements over Rebel Strike, saying that it was to have a renewed focus on vehicle missions. Rebel Strike was the first edition of the Rogue Squadron series to feature on foot sections with shooting gameplay inspired by the classic arcade game Robotron 2084. By the company's own admission, these segments hadn't turned out quite as well as they had hoped, drawing criticism from critics and fans alike. Had it been made, this new project would have done away with those sections completely. Dark Squadron was in essence a pitch that was floating around for a possible game. There was no gameplay prototype ever made, just one or two pieces of concept art, early animatics, and documentation showcasing some of the team's ideas. It was conceived after the end of development on Rebel Strike, and like that game, they wanted it to be a GameCube exclusive. The material for Dark Squadron was coming together towards the end of 2003, as LucasArts was preparing to deliberate over their budget for the following year. This was a time when the publisher would review pitches from their partners and decide which games would be receiving funding. LucasArts, of course, wasn't just a publisher. It had its own in-house development team that was making its own original projects, like various tie-ins to the Star Wars prequel movie. They were also contributing towards various productions being handled externally, including the Rogue Squadron games. Around the time that Dark Squadron was being realised, they too were trying to get a new project funded. Despite the LucasArts development team being part of the larger company, they weren't supposed to have any kind of advantage over third-party companies like Factor 5 when it came to the pitching process. They were still required to pass all of the same hurdles as anyone else trying to get a game funded. They had to present it to a LucasArts publishing committee comprised of their high Ups. The LucasArts team had come up with the concept of doing an action-adventure game with popular Star Wars character Chewbacca as the lead character. It would have explored that space of Chewie's life when he went from being a warrior on Kashyyyk to being Han Solo's right-hand man. Their ideas revolved around his adventures working as a bounty hunter between the years of episodes 3 and 4. This Chewbacca bounty hunter game was set to compete directly with Dark Squadron for funding. Due to the constraints of the yearly budget, it was unlikely that both would be picked up. If one was approved, the other would have to be shelved. Unfortunately for Factor 5, it was the Chewbacca project that would emerge the victor, while Star Wars Dark Squadron was rejected. Reportedly, there was some trepidation around proprietary issues, as well as how well Factor 5 would be able to implement some of their ideas, and how the player would perceive them in the game. Although, some former associates of the two companies blamed the outcome, at least partially, on politics inside LucasArts. The creative head of the Chewbacca game was Hayden Blackman, who was the project lead on the MMO Star Wars Galaxies. It's claimed by some that Blackman may have used his influence inside the company to sway the Greenlighting Committee and help push Dark Squadron aside to further his project. Factor 5, meanwhile, was quick to recover from their loss, having a new proposal lined up, and this time with the full backing of LucasArts. They now sought to produce a remastered compilation of the Rogue Squadron games with new features and some major improvements. During the development of Rebel Strike, Factor 5 had come under increasing pressure from LucasArts to abandon their pact of exclusivity with Nintendo. Rogue Squadron 2 and 3 were both GameCube exclusives, despite the console struggling to sell nearly as well as Nintendo had hoped. While Rogue Leader performed well at the launch of the system, its sequel wasn't anywhere near as successful. LucasArts wanted Factor 5 to start developing for a console with a larger share of the market that was powerful enough to run their games, the Xbox. After some reluctance, Factor 5 finally 
finally agreed in late 2003 that they would begin developing for the Xbox, starting with the Rogue Squadron collection. This would appease LucasArts from a business perspective, but to Factor 5 it also meant they could embrace the new opportunities which came with the platform. It allowed them to explore a frontier they had been unable to on GameCube, which was online play. All of the versus modes that were previously only available through local split screen were now to be redone to support play over Xbox Live. Work on the Xbox conversion of Rogue Squadron progressed without incident until April 2004, when the foundations of LucasArts were rocked by management shifts. The company's board appointed their vice president of marketing, Jim Ward, as their new president. Ward had inherited the duty of turning the declining publisher around. At the time, they were in such bad financial shape that employee bonuses for 2004 had to be dropped completely. Their new president wasted little time in asserting himself. Within the first months under Ward's leadership, LucasArts cut numerous projects benefiting from their funding, and before long, the Rogue Squadron trilogy found itself in the firing line. Despite the fact that it was around halfway done and was on schedule for a late 2004 release, the project was canned in an unexpected turn for the developers. Most of the work done was on porting the offline missions into one merged interface. The online components were never up and running. In a twist of irony, the Chewbacca game, which inadvertently led Factor 5 towards making the Rogue Squadron collection project, was never made either. Although it did pass the initial pitching process and was greenlit, it was later shot down by George Lucas himself. Lucas apparently didn't appreciate some of their ideas, like the thought of Chewbacca leading his own game. Instead, the team ended up working on a new game, which would eventually become Star Wars The Force Unleashed. For a while, Factor 5's Rogue Squadron collection would remain shelved. It wasn't until over three years later that it would eventually resurface. In late 2007, production on Lair Factor 5's poorly reviewed PlayStation 3 exclusive was wrapping up. It was then that the company entered one of the most experimental parts of its history. Pitches for new original games were being formulated left and right. It was in this bubble of possibility that Rogue Squadron would return. They planned to resurrect the half-finished remastered trilogy with a wealth of new features under the codename of Green Harvest. Their platform of choice to develop it on was the Wii. This was due to their friendly relationship with Nintendo and extensive knowledge of the hardware from having a hand in designing the GameCube years earlier. Their ideas of how to use its unique features to give it broader appeal were how they were able to sell LucasArts on reviving it. They would build a selection of new multiplayer modes including, most crucially, a lightsaber game which would use the Wii's upcoming Motion Plus peripheral for optimum accuracy. It would be a lightsaber duel mode where players would slash one another to the death, complete with character-specific force powers like lightning. As it turned out, Factor 5 became one of the first developers outside of Nintendo to receive early prototypes for the Motion Plus accessory. This allowed them plenty of time to implement it. The lightsaber battle mode was fairly robust, featuring 20 playable characters and the ability to add comically large me-heads to them. The character roster was made up of Emperor Palpatine, Darth Maul, Darth Vader, Obi-Wan, Yoda, and a handful of variants upon Princess Leia and Luke Skywalker. Skywalker. This included their various appearances from the movies like Luke's Stormtrooper disguise and Leia's infamous slave costume. The mode was playable in a variety of iconic settings, including the Death Star hangar and the Cloud City Carbon Freezing Chamber. Each had its own environmental hazards, including crates that could be hurled using the Force and death pits that players could be knocked down. Alongside the lightsaber dueling was a new speeder bike race mode inspired by the forest chase sequence from Return of the Jedi. Players could compete with one another across a selection of planets, such as Tatooine or Endor. The Wii compilation scrapped the concept of online play
play that its Xbox forerunner once touted as a core feature. Instead, the developers chose to invest their time in adding new modes and creating a local multiplayer section with plenty of content. In addition to the multiple versus game types, there was an entire cooperative campaign too. It all sported new support for widescreen and ran at 60 frames per second using Factor 5's in-house Wii engine. The structural setup of the main story missions was a bit different from the original games, as opposed to playing through a fixed campaign and unlocking them one after the other in a linear order, you would collect credits from each level and would then be able to choose whichever stage you wanted to play next. The collection included every ship that had previously been in the series, as well as one new addition, an ATPT for the Walker missions. As for the controls, the game offered a wide selection of options. There was support for classic controllers, GameCube controllers, the Wii Remote held horizontally, the Wii Remote and Nunchuck combo, or the Wii Remote positioned vertically controlling the ship with the infrared pointer. Players could even add a Wii bounce board to one of these, manipulating the acceleration by applying pressure to the left and right of it with their feet. The Wii Trilogy Collection was a somewhat more accessible take on Rogue Squadron that aimed to remedy a lot of the issues audiences had with past releases. Namely, they had overhauled the on-foot sections from Rebel Strike, retooling the aiming mechanics to make them much less automated, and introducing cover shooter elements. The project ran smoothly for over a year until December 2008 when the studio faced bankruptcy. They had also been working on an open world Superman game for Brash Entertainment, who had went under in November. Factor 5 had opted to pay for development themselves in the hope that a new publisher would pick it up. Due to the toxic financial climate at the time, no new publishing partner was found, Factor 5's monetary resources were drained, and they too were forced to shut down. Some reports claim that this was the end of the Rogue Squadron Wii project, that it was at this stage completed and mysteriously never released. The truth is a bit more complicated than that. On December 19th, 2008, Factor 5 Inc's president, Julian Egbrecht, laid off all of their remaining workforce without pay. It was seemingly the end of the company and all of their respective projects. Or was it? In the weeks before closure, it had become clear to their management that bankruptcy was all but inevitable. They therefore hatched a contingency plan to allow some of their games to live on. Kept secret from most of their employees, they would form a spiritual successor to survive Factor 5. Its name was Blue Harvest, a knowing wink towards the fake working title of Return of the Jedi used to hide its production. Blue Harvest was registered on December 9th, 2008, 10 days before Factor 5 Inc's closure. It was owned by Julian Egbrecht's partner, Cartier Reitermeyer. The day-to-day -day running of the company was handled largely by the same people as Factor 5, but it was put under Reitermeyer's name to avoid credit issues. Two days after it was set up, Egbrecht sold Factor 5's assets to Blue Harvest, including all of their intellectual property like unfinished games. In January 2009, Blue Harvest was renamed to White Harvest and opened for business less than nine miles away from the offices of its predecessor. It was made up of developers previously employed by Factor 5 Inc and continued some of their projects where they left off, including the Rogue Squadron Wii trilogy. Not everyone was invited to join White Harvest, however. Many ex-Factor 5 staffers were left in the dark about its existence, leading to an uproar which would ultimately tear the new enterprise apart. In January 2009, the former members of Factor 5 began to discover the truth. White Harvest was essentially resuming the work of Factor 5, with many of the same people as before, under a new name. They had worked almost two months unpaid before abruptly being let go as the company collapsed without proper notice under Californian state law. Julian Egbrecht had told them that they were unable to pay them for their weeks of work because LucasArts had first claimed to any of their remaining money as per a loan agreement signed in 
in 2004. Yet, they had been able to fund a whole new company. People were starting to question how. White Harvest was open between January until the end of July in 2009. It was in this space of time that Green Harvest, now officially titled Star Wars Rogue Squadron Wii Rogue Leaders, was finally finished. However, what had also happened along the way was two major lawsuits being filed against the founders of Factor 5, which heavily involved White Harvest. The aforementioned unpaid former workers sued them for a variety of alleged violations. Not only did they want to claim their unpaid wages, they were suing for such reasons as improper notice before termination, and most damningly of all, fraud. They alleged that Factor 5 had fraudulently transferred its assets to White Harvest to avoid paying creditors. The lawsuits would drag out for years to come, and in the middle of it was LucasArts, the publisher of Star Wars Rogue Leader's Wii. They were left with a completed game on their hands, and yet they would decide against releasing it. LucasArts had been complicit in the operations of White Harvest, helping fund them despite full knowledge that lawsuits from former employees were likely. If the court cases surrounding the game ended badly for the founders of Factor 5, it had the potential to threaten the public images of both developer and publisher. From the perspective of LucasArts, Rogue Squadron Wii could have been caught in a hurricane of bad PR. It was for this reason that one very risk-averse publisher left the game unreleased, keeping the spotlight away from the delicate legal situation. White Harvest's other projects failed, and without any revenue from the sales of Star Wars, like Factor 5 before it, it was forced to close. The lawsuits against the former heads of Factor 5 would last over seven years, the last finally being resolved in 2015. All of the unpaid developers were reimbursed for their ordeal. The accusations of fraud, on the other hand, were ultimately dismissed. During the span of the main court battle, the generation of the Wii passed, ending any remaining hope that LucasArts would allow Rogue Leader's Wii to come out in its original form. The only copies of the game known to exist are now among the former management of Factor 5 and White Harvest, as well as in the LucasArts archives, which are now owned by Disney. Perfect Dark, released in 1999, continued rare stride of Nintendo 64 hits. The shooter sold well and quickly solidified itself as a fan favourite. Rare would later revisit the IP in a prequel initially set for the GameCube. After they were famously acquired by Microsoft, the project moved over to the Xbox before finally migrating to the Xbox 360 as a launch title in the form of Perfect Dark Zero. The game garnered reasonably positive reviews from critics when it was first released, but as time went on, appreciation for it diminished. Its reception among fans wasn't nearly as warm as the originals, and even some of the publications that did take a liking to it remarked of how it failed to meet the high standards left behind by its predecessor. More crucially, there were some inside Rare itself who weren't happy with it. If Perfect Dark as a series was to continue, it was looking increasingly likely that it would do so with an approach very different from the one adopted by Zero. This was further cemented when Chris Tilston, its director, decided to work on an MMO game named Cascade after it was finished. With Tilston occupied, the the company's managers Chris and Tim Stamper then pursued other options in order for them to keep developing Perfect Dark games on the Xbox 360. Their candidate to pick up the reins was Chris Siever, the writer and director of Conker's Bad Fur Day. When they first approached him in late 2006, he was already deep into developing another game concept, an adventure title known as Urchin. Chris, however, soon accepted their offer of leading a new Perfect Dark while Urchin was shelved. Siever then began to develop ideas for this next game and was given a team of around 12 people to help 
bring them to life. His new take on Perfect Dark was very much a reaction to what he perceived were the mistakes of the previous games. It was his attempt to reform the series and its title character, moving it into a place that was previously unexplored territory, but where he felt it always should have gone to. Stepping back from the mythical melodramatics of Zero Story, this new game was shaping up to be a more serious romp with its roots firmly in science fiction. Like every Perfect Dark, the portrayal of its protagonist Joanna Dark was a reflection of the tone the game was striving to convey and differed accordingly. This Joanna was much less of the sensitive young girl seen in Zero or the light-hearted heroine of the original. We would have seen a very different interpretation of the character. She was tougher, colder, a killer hardened by her years of experience. The Joe in this game has been through a lot in the time since she was last seen, and she's carrying the scars both physical and emotional as proof of that. She now walks the line between trained assassin and psychopath. Over the course of development, documents were put together plotting out every beat of the campaign. This included a list of chapters, levels, and even the colour palette each location would use. Siva imagined its story in what was, for a pitch of this nature, fairly great detail. It was shaping up to be an intricately woven plot intended to have players constantly second-guessing. It was filled with elaborate twists such as surprise betrayals and major revelations about the perfect Dark Universe. Unlike Zero, this new installment was a sequel to the Nintendo 64 game taking place years after it. It brought back some familiar narrative elements including extraterrestrials like the Skedar. It would have seen Joe embarking on an adventure around the world and beyond it as she unravels another alien conspiracy. She first visits the tombs of Cairo before heading to Russia and eventually into outer space. She would have been joined by a team of allies that grows throughout the game as you progress. Most of these were new characters with one exception. Their names were Milton, Pennington, Mia and Sable. Eventually they would be accompanied by Elvis, the main alien who Joanna befriended in the first game. Chris revealed that Elvis would not have remained friendly however, he would have betrayed them as the game went on. In the backdrop of all this, humanity in the perfect dark universe has advanced to the point where manned space travel further across our solar system has become a reality. Russia is in the process of investigating the area of space around Saturn, and Ms. Dark, curious about their intentions, isn't far behind. She's also facing a mysterious new foe, Prince Vox, the game's central antagonist. Later into the story, she uncovers that the Russians have found evidence of possible alien activity on one of Saturn's moons, Titan. Scientists examining it may have found proof of an ancient civilization beneath its icy surface. After being briefly imprisoned in a gulag, Joe escapes and with the aid of her team moves to infiltrate a planned Russian expedition to Titan. They secretly stow away aboard shuttles which take them to a small space station in Titan's orbit called OSV Huygens. This was a reference to Christian Huygens, the real-life Dutch scientist who discovered Titan. From this point, Joe and her team descend to the surface and eventually navigate their way below it to see for themselves the apparent remnants of this ancient civilization. As they come to understand, all is not as it seems, or as Chris Siva himself put it, Titan hides a terrible secret. Titan, in the perfect dark universe, is an actuality, Earth, from the future. It transpires that around 50 years in the future from Joanna's present, the end of the world arrives when aliens attack using advanced black hole 
technology. The planet is catapulted through space and time itself. It's sent back billions of years into the past to a time when Saturn was closer to the sun. Earth is pulled into its orbit before freezing over into its final resting place. That's not the only big reveal that would have come to light in the game's final act. Players would have learned that Prince Vox, the aforementioned villain, is in fact a much older version of Joe Dark from the relatively far off future in disguise. Following these revelations, Joanna would have returned to the surface for the final stage. It's around this point that yet another twist plays out and one of her teammates Mia unmasks herself as Mr. Blonde, one of the evil Skedar warriors from the first game. Mr. Blonde's fate was left ambiguous after the events of Perfect Dark and he now reveals himself as being among the last surviving members of the Skedar race back to claim his revenge. Joanna's remaining teammates are killed and she herself is left critically injured. In the closing cinematic, Mr. Blonde leaves using a Mayan spacecraft, abandoning Joe on Titan's surface to her presumed death. The last shot sees her looking out at the moon's barren landscape with Saturn visible in the distance. Nice view, she remarks. This, however, wasn't the absolute end. Chris Seaver and his team proposed doing not just one game, but two of them. The first was dubbed Perfect Dark Core, and its direct follow-up was named Perfect Dark Vengeance. It was a two-episode sci-fi epic, one overarching narrative taking place over two releases, and each part was planned to be developed back-to-back. -back. Chris compared this process to the multi-part approach adopted by certain Hollywood films, like the Harry Potter and Hunger Games movies respectively. Part of the team's motivation behind wanting to do this was to alleviate downtime between projects. With the technology from Core already built and everything mapped out moving forward, they would have been allowed to develop Vengeance with greater efficiency. They hoped to create two fully featured games that could stand on their own terms, both with, for example, a multiplayer suite on top of the campaign mode. It was never precisely determined how exactly they intended to explain Joe surviving the events of Core's ending, but one former designer did recall discussions of potentially using advanced technology like teleportation as a means of reversing her presumed death. Regardless, Seaver himself suggested that her revival might well have been in vain and that her subsequent efforts to undo Earth's doom would have in reality done more to cause it, a tragic self-fulfilling prophecy of sorts. The developer teased however exactly it was going to play out that it wouldn't have ended well for Perfect Dark. Beginning with Perfect Dark Core, there were aspirations of making an FPS campaign that would define the norm at the time, moving against the design principles adopted by shooters like Call of Duty. Chris wanted to apply a less linear, sandbox feel that would give players more control and make battles seem much more dynamic as opposed to scripted. A designer who worked on the project shared some of the concepts that were prototyped during development that exemplify these philosophies. One feature worthy of note were unscripted, physics-based interactions with your environment. You could kick doors open and if timed correctly, they would smash enemies in the face leaving them stunned. Players would have been able to rack up combos by landing hits in quick succession, and if a certain amount was reached, a deadly Bond-esque finishing move would become available. In Perfect Dark Core, getting through levels solely through use of firearms was generally discouraged. You would have often been pushed towards finding more intuitive ways to resolve combat situations, like shooting out supports to cause a heavy object to fall and crush enemies. Using stealth was also an option. 
Another big addition to the formula was a mech that Joanna would have been able to pilot. During certain sections, a dropship would become available within standard gameplay, which players could use to summon a large and powerful mech to assist you in battle. Joe could hop in and control it, or remain on foot and direct it remotely, assigning it basic commands like follow or attack. The mech had been given the nickname Talbot by members of the team, which appears on its model. This was a very deliberate nod towards Gary Talbot, an animator who worked on the project. Initially, when Joanna first encountered the Talbot mech, it would have appeared hostile, but once defeated, it would become a reliable tool in her arsenal. There were other gadgets being tested too, including grenades that would slow down time within the vicinity of detonation. The player's perspective and core was being described as ultra first person, introducing parkour-style movement, expanded melee combat, and a new camera system to create a much more intense, visceral experience. When this was initially pitched to Res management, there was some concerns that this might cause motion sickness, so a lot of time was spent fine-tuning and balancing it, giving realistic weight and inertia to head movement. Joanna's head would even turn automatically in reaction to external stimuli like explosions within a certain distance of her. Despite the game being worked on for around a year, Joanna herself was never actually given her own in-game model. As director, Chris was never sufficiently satisfied with any of the design concepts suggested by Rare's artists. Instead of committing to one as the basis for a model, a placeholder was used for prototypes, another model that had already been made from male AI soldier. Perfect Dark Core was under development between 2006 and 7 among an increasingly small team. It had not at any point been approved for full production. They were given the freedom to experiment and build their ideas to hopefully secure the green light from Microsoft. Former employees admitted that in the latter half of its lifespan, the core team had become desperately understaffed. First, artists were removed, causing the team to shift towards concentrating on developing an engine and other tech, as well as polishing Joanna's movement. Eventually, the team was reduced to no more than several people. Shrinking their resources like this was a deliberate attempt by Rare to keep the project low cost and under Microsoft's radar to prevent them from intervening and cancelling it. Rare's management had faith in the project to produce a worthwhile sequel, and months were spent trying to convince Microsoft of its potential. It would ultimately come down to a meeting in 2007 between members of Rare and Microsoft Game Studios to determine its fate. On Rare's side, this included founders Chris and Tim Stamper, alongside project leader Chris Seaver. They were joined by Microsoft's Ken Lobb, Shane Kim, Phil Spencer, and their corporate vice president of interactive entertainment, Peter Moore. What apparently ensued was a lengthy back and forth of Rare trying to persuade the publisher of its creative merits to have them funded as one of their next big games. Microsoft's representatives weren't convinced. They made the argument that the Xbox 360's first party lineup already had multiple titles belonging to the sci-fi shooter genre. From their point of view, with popular franchises like Halo and Gears of War, this was a pillar they had already covered thoroughly. Rare's heads insisted that Perfect Dark could still offer an experience unique and interesting enough to stand out from those games, but ultimately it wasn't enough. Microsoft's people were unable to overcome their reservations, and cited underwhelming sales figures for Perfect Dark Zero as another reason why it was a risk. It was Peter Moore who would have the final say who turned down the proposal then and there. Perfect Dark Core and its imagined sequel Vengeance would not come to be. For Rare, it wasn't a complete loss however. Some of the technology developed during Core was harvested to be used in other projects, namely Banjo-Kazooie Nuts and Bolts. After it fell through, the remaining few members of the Perfect Dark team drew up two new concepts to rework some of their ideas. The first was a short-lived multiplayer co-op game with a Looney Tunes-esque cartoony aesthetic and exaggerated physics. Then there was Ordinary Joe, Chris 
Deceiver's take on the survival horror genre. This saw them re-implementing the parkour and climbing mechanics that were originally programmed for core. It would have tasked the player, who was an arm throughout the game, with scaling rooftops to escape an evil force invading from a parallel world. Both of these projects, like Perfect Dark's lost sequels, were never picked up. Chris Seaver, as well as all of the most central members of his Perfect Dark team, later left the company in the years that followed. In July 2015, gaming news site Gamatsu came across a trademark filing from Sony for a video game related product named Nomageddon. The internet soon became rife with rumour and speculation about what exactly this was. The name would crop up again in the Sony rumour mill nearly two years later when a Reddit user claimed in February 2017 that Nomageddon was a western style game from Sucker Punch Productions. However, this hearsay went without proof and the enigma that was Nomageddon remained. I contacted various ex-employees from Sony to put the mystery to rest. Nomageddon was a project belonging to Sony Interactive Entertainment's San Diego subsidiary, which is sometimes referred to as SD Studio, or simply Sony San Diego. This division of Sony made its debut in 2002 with an original IP for the PlayStation 2 called The Mark of Cree. However, much of the creative force behind that project departed the company after it was finished. The remaining members of Sony's San Diego branch after that would make mostly sports games, including yearly installments of NBA for PlayStation platforms. What's not widely understood, however, was how the subsidiary actually operated from this point on. In the mid-2000s, the studio was divided into two sections. One side of it would develop the main version of a game for a home console, whereas the other would simultaneously work on a port of that title for Sony's portable system at that point in time. This arrangement began with NBA 06. One team made the PS2 version, while the other ported it to PSP. These two groups worked at the same location, but in two separate buildings with little interaction between the two. They both had their own individual managers, staffing matters like job interviews were handled completely separately. For the most part, it was as though they were two different companies. The developers that I spoke to even sometimes referred to them as such. For a long time, the portable development department of Sony San Diego existed almost in the shadow of its counterpart. The home console side took the lead on projects and got to occasionally experiment with its own original IPs like 2007's Pain for PS3. The portable side, on the other hand, wasn't generally afforded such creative freedom. That gradually began to change in around 2010. Previously, they had been working solely on NBA games for PSP when the NBA rights holders unexpectedly raised the cost of the license to around 15 to 20 million dollars. Sony was not willing to cover such costs and the deal ended. With their tenure doing NBA titles finished, they were finally given an opportunity to tackle some original projects of their own. The arrival of the PlayStation Vita saw them working on a handheld sequel to Modern Nation Race. It was successful enough to open the door for them being able to handle projects with more independence. In 2013, the managers of the subsidiary held what they called a PlayStation Game Jam. Developers were tasked with each coming up with a premise for a completely new game and pitching it to them. The ideas they deemed most interesting would get a shot at being made. Two concepts emerged victorious from this internal competition. The first, a survival game about escaping a zombie outbreak, would be given priority and enter full production first. The other, which would be developed slowly in the background of the other project was a game about gnomes. The concept for it originated from a special effects artist at the company. It was intended to be an online action game involving factions of garden gnomes fighting one another. Among the heads of staff it was received well. A very small allocation of their 50 total developers was put onto the project while the majority of them went to work on the zombie game. At a very early point the call was made to pursue a free-to-play model for the two titles. According to former developers this was partly an 
attempt on Sony's behalf to tap into the growing free-to-play market on mobile platforms at the time. Sony San Diego staff were apparently happy to be doing something original, but some held some deep reservations about the payment system. In 2014, after about a year into development, the two games had made some progress. A few more staff were transitioning to the GNOME game, which had picked up the working title of Gnomageddon. Meanwhile, that other project had been going through some big changes. A senior staffer had apparently remarked that zombies had become overplayed and instructed the developers to alter the game's premise to instead be about mutants. With this change in direction, it would become known as Killstrain. Work on Nomageddon would last around three years altogether, and it was being built by a small group of people. Over those few years, Killstrain was subject to various setbacks, meaning some staff were transferred from Nomageddon to assist them. Confidence at the studio for Killstrain had dwindled somewhat. Former staff say that the game lacked solid direction and a much needed visionary to guide it, someone with a strong sense of what it was really supposed to be. It ended up as a top-down MOBA game that pitted mercenaries against mutants in a futuristic setting. Although there was some enthusiasm about it, others at Sony failed to see what the game's hook was. Nomageddon, by all accounts, was a different story. It had a visionary with big ideas at the helm, and despite no more than 11 people being assigned to it at any one time, its developers believed it was coming along well. It was an online third-person action game in which each player controlled one member in a party of heroic garden gnomes who were charged with fighting a faction of evil garden gnomes. The game was set to be split into three main modes. The first one they developed was a simple versus mode. For all intents and purposes, this was a team deathmatch setup where two teams forfeit territory. Originally, the versus mode was the project's focus, and the developers had intended to mimic the style of a MOBA. There were six different classes of gnomes available, each with their own unique playstyles and abilities. These were fighter, tank, assassin, mage, marksman, and support respectively. Each were equipped with various makeshift weapons cobbled together from supplies found around the gardens and sheds of the neighborhood. The other two modes were called Raid and Holdout respectively. Holdout was a game type similar to Horde mode from Gears of War. Waves of malevolent gnomes controlled by the game's AI were invading your garden, and alongside several other teammates, you had to defend it. In particular, you had to protect the garden shed. If the enemies were able to reach it and destroy it, the game was over. If you succeeded, each player would receive a sizable payout of loot. This could then be used to upgrade your customizable gnome character with new abilities and weapons to make them more powerful. Raid, lastly, was the closest thing the game had to a campaign. It was another cooperative mode in which you and your fellow gnomes had to go on the offensive and seize an enemy garden. This would involve completing a set objective, which ranged from freeing friendly AI gnomes who had been taken prisoner or stealing loot from their shed. Occasionally, raid players would trigger a boss encounter. These were much bigger and tougher computer-controlled enemies. An example of one of these was called a Flamingo. This was a garden flamingo ornament being ridden by gnomes who would hurl molotov cocktails in your direction. These would ignite fires on the garden lawn, and if the heroes came into contact with one, it would deal considerable damage. They could, however, run under a sprinkler to extinguish themselves. Every mode in the game would have been completely free to access, with no restrictions on playtime. It would have generated revenue by offering optional microtransactions. A developer I spoke to likened its approach to Overwatch, saying that the game would have had crates of loot players could purchase, containing new skins, characters, buffs, and other perks. Nomageddon was also planned to have a side game option to keep players engaged between battles. Players could collect smaller gnomes from winning matches and loot boxes, then dispatch them to complete side missions on their behalf. The player would have had no direct control over them, instead having to choose which mission to send them on after weighing up the risk factors. If the little gnomes were successful, they would return to give you the spoils of their victory, extra loot. A couple of developers had started to map out 
an extensive amount of lore to help add more meaning to the game's world. Its backstory, which had its tongue firmly in its cheek, borrowed from real life history, and even offered a whimsical explanation for how the gnomes had first become sentient. In the 1870s, Philip Griebel was a German pioneer in gnome creation who's widely thought to be the father of the garden gnome as we know it today. He sculpted a line of 21 garden gnomes based around folklore and invented fanciful stories about each one of them coming to life. A traveller named Sir Charles Isham purchased these gnomes and returned with them to his home in England, where he would kickstart the trend of displaying gnomes as garden accessories. In Gnomageddon's take on the tale, Philip Griebel crafted the gnomes and their individual stories to cheer up his sick daughter. He sold them to Charles Isham reluctantly in order to cover his daughter's medical bills. However, unbeknownst to Isham, Griebel had made his gnomes with such affection that he had magically willed them to life. After being shipped to England, the sentient gnomes realised that the magic inside each of them can be used to bring other garden ornaments to life. Some years later, Isham passes away and his estate sells them to various owners around the world where they spread their life-giving rainbow energy. Living garden gnomes have quietly become commonplace since then. The story of Gnomageddon was set in modern-day suburbs and followed a particular group of friendly and dutiful gnomes who guard their neighbourhood against pests and owners with no green thumbs. One day their turf becomes threatened by a new set of gnomes on the block and their leader, the tyrannical Conquest, a large villain gnome with a tragic past. Conquest was once a kind gnome named Larry who fell in love when his owners added to their garden collection an angel statue. Due to the angel being cracked from having once been smashed and glued back together, Larry was unable to bring it to life on his own, his powers insufficient. He then searched for a licorice plant, an ingredient which is said to have been used by the original 21 gnomes to enhance their magical abilities. Unable to find one of these in his neighbourhood, a frustrated Larry kicked over a bin and out of it tumbled a discarded pack of black licorice candy, which in a moment of desperation he consumed. Due to black licorice candy being quote unquote the most vile and disgusting candy on the planet according to the game, it twisted and corrupted him, warping him into a dark version of himself. The transformation drained him of his life-giving rainbow energy, leaving him unhinged and angry. He concocts an evil plan to reap his fellow gnomes of their energy by either corrupting or destroying them. He gathers more discarded black licorice candy and begins force feeding it to other gnomes, amassing an army and storing their rainbow energy in a ceramic cube as it leaves their bodies. However, the dark leader's plans are foiled when his human owners decide to move houses and leave the cube behind before he can use it. Forced to start all over again, Larry, who has since taken on the moniker of Conquest, spreads his army over the neighbouring gardens to either corrupt or kill whatever gnomes they cross paths with. The battle for the neighbourhood between the player-controlled hero gnomes and Conquest's League of Ceramic Minions is on. These plot details were very early, but the developers responsible for them already had some vivid ideas for the world building they hoped to accomplish. They'd even given some thought for a potential sequel or DLC expansion to be released further down the line that would continue the story. Gnomageddon would have had an ending sequence of some kind in which Conquest would have finally succeeded in gaining enough magical energy for his ritual and giving his angel love the gift of life. However, in a twist, the living angel would turn out to be far more evil than even Conquest himself ever was. With her powers overwhelmingly strong from receiving so much energy, she threatens to destroy the neighbourhood itself. In a follow-up of some sort, we were intended to see Conquest team up with the heroes from the first story to stop her. It was never figured out how exactly a lot of this storytelling would have worked in the game, but one developer did suggest that some of the lore might have ended up being released externally on the game's website or social media. After all, 
this was an online multiplayer game and the team was putting gameplay first. Their approach might well have been paying off because it was apparently very well received among test audiences that were brought in by Sony to play in development builds of the game. It's also said to have been well liked internally, notably more than Killstrain was. It was through no fault of its own that Nomageddon was never finished. Its demise was down to the failure of the studio's other game, Killstrain, a project that a lot of the Nomageddon team had little to no involvement with. Killstrain marked a considerable financial loss for Sony. It was originally intended to be made in only a year or two, being announced in December 2014. But due to how often it meandered creatively and struggled to find an identity for a lot of that time, it took about three and a half years to complete and racked up development costs estimated by former staff to be around 15 to 16 million dollars. It was eventually released on July 19th, 2016. Its launch didn't pan out quite as well as Sony San Diego's staff had expected. While high volumes of activity recorded for its first days did show signs of promise, the numbers would soon drop off. Former staff blame this largely on Sony's lack of promotion for the game. The publisher's efforts to publicise Killstrain were minimal and this irked people at Sony San Diego. Apart from a handful of videos posted to the official PlayStation YouTube channel, there was next to nothing advertising it to players. The biggest issue that the developers took with Sony's treatment of the title was its placement on the PSN store. For its first week on the market, it was displayed front and centre. After that, however, it disappeared from the front page and could only be discovered by digging around in the store's free-to-play games. This lack of visibility stopped Killstrain from growing, limiting its ability to bring in revenue. A former SD Studio developer said, I don't think they grasp that in free-to-play games, only 2% of the people playing actually give you money. Unless you have millions of people playing, you won't make any money, so they basically killed their own game by not pushing it harder. Killstrain's audience in its initial months was small, but not without its dedicated users. To appease them and hopefully attract new users, Sony San Diego's managers instructed their staff to continue preparing new content and updates to improve it. Nomageddon's developers were pulled off the project and put on a Killstrain to assist them with this. Everything at the studio was mired in uncertainty from this point on, as workers were given a nebulous amount of time to make Killstrain better. It seems that few anticipated what was to come. Some told me they believed the failure of Killstrain would be overlooked and that Nomageddon's potential would keep them afloat. Just less than two months after Killstrain came out, Scott Rohde, the head of product development for Sony's US division, told them that they couldn't see a future for the game. Some staff were under the impression there would be a handful of layoffs, but Sony had something more radical in mind. They were shutting their entire wing of SD Studio down. All 50 or so members of staff involved with either Killstrain or Nomageddon, including management, were promptly let go. Among those affected would have developers who had worked there for over 15 years. Former members of the studio say they were abruptly ushered out of the building the morning this happened without being able to take samples of their work. They were allegedly told that Sony would contact them at a later date to send them the material they needed, but it appears only a small handful of developers actually received theirs. For everyone else, they were cut off from preserving their work and weren't allowed to re-enter the disused offices. As an entire section of Sony San Diego or a whole studio depending on how you define it was dissolved, Nomageddon also met its end. Had it continued on its intended schedule, it would have come out sometime in 2017. Meanwhile, the surviving half of SD Studio remained open to continue working on MLB and other side projects. 
How Nomageddon would have turned out, we will never know, but its developers speak of their time on it fondly, and many of them continue to believe in its potential. These experiences form a contrast to the rocky development of Killstrain, the project that ultimately sealed its fate. After support for the game was dropped, Sony switched its servers off just less than a year on from its release on July 1st, 2017.